This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft Teams. When there are more ways to be together, there are more ways to be a team. He's covered the big events and talked to the biggest names in sports for more than three decades. Breeze end zone. He hit it. 500 career touchdown passes. From Super Bowls to the World Series, he's been there, he'll be there, and he's here now for CMI, the Chris Myers interview. Good to have Lee Steinberg on CMI, the Chris Myers interview here on Podcast One. He, he's been more than four decades super agent to the stars, number one overall draft picks, eight different times. He's put 11 players he's represented to have contributed to them going into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but not just football, a number of other sports represents Patrick Mahomes. It's just great to, to catch up with him. Lee, uh, how are you holding up? You doing okay? Yeah, good. We're doing just fine, and our office never closed, and I couldn't be more excited. Yeah, and it seems like you've never closed. What an amazing career. People see the movie Jerry Maguire. We'll get into that if they don't understand or pay close attention to what sports agents do. Uh, but uh, we talk about a comeback story. We talk about that for a lot of athletes, and you you have one of your own, which we can get into in time. And I know you've talked about it, but you keep influencing agents and players and, and, and athletes. And, and let's just start with, with Patrick Mahomes, a guy like that who wasn't taken number one overall in the draft, but here at a young age, wins a Super Bowl, gets an opportunity. Opportunity, has such a, a comfortable uh, way uh, about him. How does an agent like you, and I, I hate to simplify it, but people say, well, how did, why, why did, he, how did he land a guy like that uh, and, 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 and already at, at, at great heights? Is there a story, a background to this, a connection that maybe we, we haven't heard all the details on? So Patrick's parents, Randy and Patrick Sr., were the screening committee for Patrick. And his father, a former major league pitcher. Sorry not to interrupt you, but. Yes, his, father, his dad pitched in the major leagues. They also had uh, the help of Patrick Sr.'s good friend and, and the godfather to Patrick, Latrell Hawkins, who pitched for 20 years, uh, was part of their interviewing committee. What happens is we go ahead and profile athletes looking for those with high character, who have a good heart, want to be charitably involved, and are ambitious, and Patrick fit all of that. And we thought he was a gifted talent that was being overlooked because Texas Tech's defense was so weak that they had to score 50 points a game to have a chance of winning. So it meant he was under pressure on every single play to try to score a touchdown. And so he made throws and did things uh, out of desperation at times that made people think he was a gunslinger. But if you could project him past that and actually look at his skill set, the most amazing arm ever, the incredible maturity, leadership skills, and the ability to elevate his play in critical situations. So we had a series of discussions, didn't meet Patrick, met with the parents a number of different times, and then when his last season ended, uh, met with Patrick, and you had to be impressed because he was so bright, so mature, and so aware. Have you had athletes, like I'm thinking of a young guy like Mahomes, right, who hit stardom and they get the contract and then they change uh, or, or you see a change in them or they run into some serious difficulties, let's say away from the game or maybe even with, with their team? Have you had some examples of that and is there a way, uh, because everybody's their own man, of helping to guard the, the player, the person against that? really important at the beginning 
to sit and talk with an athlete about their responsibilities in playing in what, after all, is a public entertainment, and the fact that their behavior is going to be heavily scrutinized. So whether it's alcohol or relationships with women or not putting their hands on people in violence, we do the best possible in trying to acquaint them with that. And if they don't want to be gracious and signing autographs or giving interviews, then I'll tell them, go play in the sandbox. Preventative is always the best way to deal with someone's behavior, but keeping them grounded, mentoring them in a way where they know as rookies to go in low-key to show the owner, the coach, the general manager, and the other players that they're serious about the sport they're in, and that's their top priority. What happens here is mentoring, and we can do it ourselves, or we can have them talk to older players at um, – the position, so a Warren Moon could talk to a Patrick Mahomes. And that's a good, yeah, that's a good point because I think, you know, Troy Aikman, Steve Young, you represented those great players through their careers, Hall of Fame, and, and so maybe not a concern. But Ryan Leaf, I believe, Lee was one of the clients, and, and that's where things can get bumpy. You hear the term damage control, but can you give us an example of, of, of a player, if they're okay and you're okay with their name that we might know, where something happened and they were able to work through it and, and, uh, and, and put minimal damage from what the situation or issue was? So occasionally we have a player get a drunk driving sometimes as much cautionary tale as you do, we have to, something happens untoward. And the key there is to wrap your arms around the facts, then have the player issue an apology where he states the standard with it's wrong to get into the car with any alcohol in your system, apologizes to the relevant constituencies, and importantly shows an action step that is going to stop a recurrence. Brian Leaf had none, none of those problems. He just unfortunately was captured on a tape yelling at a reporter in a locker room. And after that, he was called out and he sort of went into a shell. And as much as we tried to help him and, and get him out of it, it just, um, he felt ostracized and he felt, uh, and he wasn't capable of coming back from that. Uh, and uh, now he's gone on to be a speaker for sobriety and and has uh, been on television. So he's tried to turn his life around. But yeah. I think that the, the key is profiling an athlete and looking into their past because the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. We've been lucky not through profiling and mentoring not to have a significant amount of that. And it's harder to do that when somebody's a young athlete, a rookie, or a college player going into the NFL, how much of their past, and obviously they're in some growing years emotionally. Are, are rookies different? Is their attitude different today compared to 10 or 20 years ago, Lee? Or 30 even, since you've been in this as long as you or have been? 40. Or 46. <laughs> right, or 40. We won't go to 50. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> so... Yes, in the sense that millennials have differences from people that are older. They're athletes who grew up on social media, and they grew up on fast, quick cuts and framing and the stimuli that comes into them. They're used to multitasking, their attention span. Certainly, 
they would admit is shorter than some of the people who came before. You better get it out quick, Chris. You know, uh, <laughs> get it out quick. Uh, so they're millennials, but you can still find young men who've got good hearts who will set up a charitable foundation like Patrick Mahomes or with Tua Tango by Loa, uh, go back to their high school and, and establish a, uh, a scholarship fund. There's still young men with good hearts who are out trying to make a difference in the world. But you have a generation brought up on TikTok and Snapchat and uh, fast cutting and, and bursts of color and all the rest, and keeping focus is a challenge. Yeah, would you advise today, and, and you tell me if an athlete says, okay, enough, you're overstepping your boundaries, even though you help me as an agent sign my deal and give me millions of dollars, you're still, they're still their own man, right? When they're, so a guy like Tua or Mahomes, you represent, let's just even take the NBA guy like Zion or, or uh, any other young athlete. Do you, do you, have you advised them on social media? Are there guidelines? And then and do they listen? Do they respond? Because you're right. It's so much a part of what they've grown up on and, and part of their daily life. Yes. So we'll look at a website. So it's a matter of understanding what the athlete's trying to project. We're obviously in a time of a fight for social justice, so you have athletes who, who we encourage to express their opinions and be politically involved. But um, one of the concepts is restraint in pen and tongue. So you can think the thought, but you don't need to translate it into a a, a tweet or uh, something else before you thought about it for a second or two, and maybe overnight. And uh, the whole concept is these athletes are in a fishbowl, and there's no concept of local anymore. Someone used to be able to give a speech in a rural part of the country, and that was who the audience was. But anything they put up on social media can be accessed around the world um, at at any time and it sits there permanently captured so trying to forge an appropriate projection on social media is really critical and you're it's rougher for the press because uh, an athlete now has his own form now there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. With Together Mode, you can bring everyone together in one space in the same virtual room. You can bring the power of true collaboration to your projects with whiteboard, drawing, sharing, and building ideas in real time, all on the same page. And with large gallery view, you can see more of your team all at once with up to 49 people on screen all at the same time. You can even raise your hand virtually so everyone can be seen and heard. When there are more ways to be together, there are more ways to be a team. Learn more about all the newest Teams features at Microsoft.com slash Teams. And you might have years ago said to an athlete, if he wanted to kneel for the anthem, you might have just said, hey, that's not a good idea. It can hurt your endorsements or the way people view you today. It's, it's a different story. Are you surprised that Colin Kaepernick uh, it doesn't have a job somewhere, or have you seen enough of his ability that uh, forget the other part of things that you know he's he's somebody who teams don't don't want to deal with uh, on their franchise. I'm not clear whether or not he had offers from Seattle, had offers from Baltimore. Um, in in 
this situation, what you're trying to do, is being paid $14 million. He had gone, taken the 49ers to the Super Bowl. But then Jim Harbaugh left, and the new coaches had a system that really wasn't set up for what he did best. In a situation like that, what I've had to do with a quarterback is find a new home and had to have that player be willing to take a step back for lower salary, maybe a supporting role to get back to the point where they can be a starter. And I'm not familiar with the process that that he went through and, and, and what occurred. Um, I'm not clear that he was willing to take a step back or step down. It's difficult if you've been paid all that money and been a starter to think of being a subordinate. So uh, I'm, unless you really know the, the facts of the different situations that were reported, it's just difficult to comment on the reason he hasn't been back in the league. Yeah, you really wonder, and we haven't heard from him clearly on a lot of things at this point as we talk, whether he really wants to play or is dedicated to actually play. He seems to have other things that he wants to do. If he, if Colin Kaepernick called you, Lee, and I don't know who his agent is or how he's represented in what capacity, but if he called you and said, I, I want you to represent me uh, to play to get back into the NFL, would you, would you take him on as a client or would you have to sit down with him? I think so because certainly – He's someone that displayed courage. He had convictions. He stood up for them. Uh, it was controversial. But I admire that quality of being willing to stand up for for your principles, or in this case, kneel through the principles, and um, even get in a long discussion about whether the stadium is the right place to do a demonstration and whether or not that's a slippery slope. But on the other hand, if the issue is critical enough and bad police shootings and the fight for social justice certainly is a critical issue, uh, then uh, it may require an extraordinary response. So I'm behind all of our players who feel compelled to to express their opinion or, or demonstrate in any way on an issue critical to them and, and to the country. Lee Steinberg is our guest, and he's been an agent for more than four decades, it's going all the way back, and, and then he was a cow, and I, I think it was Steve Bartkowski, one of the early guys that you represented. We just talked about Tua and Mahomes, people that you currently represent. There's been a lot in between all of that. Now, you're a, you're a California – you went to high school. You went to Hamilton High School, correct, in – I went to Hamilton High School in West Los Angeles that you can see off the 10 freeway. Uh, it was the site for a lot of filming because MGM is, is pretty close. And it's also the high school that Al Michaels went to and Warren Moon went to and Rita Hayworth went to. But uh, then I went to UCLA for a year and loved it, but it was the late 60s and Berkeley was beckoning as the center of uh, student life. And I ended up student body president there when Ronald Reagan was the governor. Well, we would demonstrate against the war in Vietnam and um, he would crack down. And I learned everything I ever needed to know about negotiating from uh, interacting with Governor Reagan. And we later laughed about it in uh, the White House. But 
I was a dorm counselor in an undergraduate dorm. Uh, while I was working my way through law school, and they moved the freshman football team into the dorm, and one of the students was the quarterback, Steve Markowski. And in 1975, he became the very first player selected in the first round of the NFL draft. And there I was, brimming with legal experience, uh, having traveled the world after law school. There really wasn't an organized field of sports agency then. Teams could just hang up the phone and say, we don't deal with agents. Mike Brown of the Bengals was always happy to do that. And uh, so we got the largest rookie contract in NFL history. And it was in that first experience, Chris, we're down in Atlanta. There's clean lights at the airport the night before. Uh, a crowd crush against a police line. They're interrupting the late news to bring a special bulletin. And I saw the tremendous idol worship that athletes are held in communities across the country. And my dad had had two core values. One was treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was to make a meaningful difference in the world and help people who couldn't help themselves. And I saw that the athletes could be role models and retrace their roots to the high school, collegiate, and professional community and set up charitable programs and do messaging that triggered invitative behavior, and that's been the philosophy ever since. It's an amazing ride. You covered a couple of things, which I want to go back over. Obviously, uh, Hamilton High, and you named the, uh, some of the celebrities who've gone through there. Norm Pattis, by the way, Hall of Fame radio. He's a, in the Radio Hall of Fame, Westwood One, and tried recently, but he created Westwood One and Podcast One, so another one from Hamilton High. But then when you, you mentioned uh, at, at Cal, were you was Steve Wozniak at the time? Were you uh, involved, or did your paths cross? So... Uh the same dorm that had Barkowski had this young bearded fellow who was technologically gifted. So he would set the phones ringing in every room in the dorm <laughs> to do some interest. And his name was Steve, Steve Wozniak, and he went down and formed Apple Computer. We um, also had uh, Brian Maxwell, who formed the company uh, Power Bar. We had a comedian, Bob Sarlock. We, uh, it was a only 180 uh, men, but we it was an extraordinary little group uh, that came out of the cauldron of uh, Berkeley. Of course, that was a time of social change, so long hair and and rock music. When I was student body president, I got to show uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix around Berkeley, and you know met Jim Morrison and. Wow, that's pretty. Uh, 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 that's pretty cool. Jim Morrison and Jimmy Hendrix showing them around. And then you, and I want you to expound on, Lee, when you say you learned uh, about negotiating from, from Ronald Reagan, obviously at a different time, a governor than, than president. What, what, how, can you sum up what you learned? Uh, you said you joked about it. Uh, what specifically in negotiation? Because you've been a good negotiator throughout your life. Very good in 1970. Um, he objected heavily to the fact that classes moved off campus with the invasion of uh, Cambodia uh, by President Nixon and the protests that ensued and uh, Kent State and other things that happened. So the classes moved off campus. So Governor Reagan was trying to fire the chancellor. So I went in front of the Board of Regents when Governor Reagan was on that Board of Regents 
And he looks across the table at me and he says, weren't you the same Mr. Steinberg who was arrested for sitting in front of troop trains in 1960? And I said, well, Governor, uh, in 1960, I was 11 years old. I was closer to playing with toy trains than troop trains. But that shows your usual adherence to veracity and fact. And that got going in quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a, there's a lot there. And we talked about your, uh, your California roots, whether UCLA or going up to Cal. You also were very big, and, it, and again, a generation listening to this. We had the, the Rams, the Raiders here at the same time. And then we had no, well, I say we, Southern California, Los Angeles area, no NFL team for two decades or whatever it's been. I know you worked hard. It was important for you. And I remember along the way, people said, oh, they'll never be another team in L.A. They don't really need it or they, well, they can't even support one team, let alone two. You fought hard to keep uh, teams here. And now we have two with a brand new stadium and, 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 and two you know, very exciting franchises playing in the same building, which is pretty cool at SoFi uh, Stadium. What, I, I, I mean, when you hear about, oh, Los Angeles, can they support two NFL teams. I don't think we're hearing that anymore, even though there was that big gap where we lost a lot of, we meaning Southern California, of NFL fans without their own team to grab onto, even though we have a collection of other of other fans. You know. I've always thought, Chris, that fundamentally I need to be a steward of sport. And as that, I think it's wrong for teams to abandon an area uh, just to get a little more economic recompense when they claim to be a civic treasure. So when Mayor Jordan of San Francisco called me in 1992, when the San Francisco Giants did a deal to sell to a group in Tampa Bay, uh, and he didn't know how to fight it, uh, I flew up there and, and spent a couple months fighting to save the Giants, and we had to find a new owner, and we had to... Uh, uh, or, or a group of people who would own the team. We had to convince the National League it was to get against the best interests of baseball. And uh, eventually we did that and saved the team. I had a friend, Larry Bear, who, who I asked to come back from New York to, to put together an ownership group. And, and so we saved the team. And then that group in Tampa sued me for $3 billion, which... <laughs> Uh, it fits under the rubric of uh, blood out of a turnip, right? Uh, but anyway, that got dismissed. And then they helped save the A's, uh, helped the Mayor Elihu Harris there keep them in town. And then we fought real hard to keep the Rams in town. And I think it's wrong to break the hearts of young fans. I didn't think the Chargers needed to move to L.A., but to your point about the viability of two teams in Los Angeles, when the Rams left St. Louis, they were valued at about $950 to $970 million. Now they're valued at over $3 billion. So being in a market with 17 million people able to get to a stadium within on Sunday within an hour and a half, um, and being in this massive TV market, it's all about franchise value and new stadium. And those two things are inextricably intertwined um, because the new stadium have all these ancillary revenue sources. So the Chargers, although I wish they had stayed in San Diego for those fans, the Chargers um, are making a bet 
that long term, even though in the short term it's taking them a little while, but long term they're in a bigger market and they'll have a higher franchise valuation. And eventually, uh, with so many people here, you only have to sell 10 home dates to sell out in football. It's not like baseball with anyone. So they're making a bet long term, and I, I think they're doing what they can. They're now going to move into a bigger stadium. And I give them uh, uh, credit for having a, uh, a plan to introduce themselves to the market, but it doesn't happen overnight. Now, there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. Bring everyone together in one space with a new virtual room. Collaborate live, drawing, sharing, and building ideas with everyone on the same page. And make sure that more of your team is seen and heard with up to 49 people on screen at once. Learn more about all the newest Teams features at Microsoft.com Teams. Do you think do you think San Diego should get an NFL franchise back? Do you think Seattle should get an NBA franchise back and, and that they would support it? Those were great cities when they had those particular Again, I I, I thought that the Chargers had loyal fan base in San Diego, so I wish they hadn't switched. But now that they're here, I hope they're successful. Uh, and we'll root for them. I did help people in Seattle. I think it's wrong. Think of this like it was the San Francisco Giants. So what they say is we're your San Francisco Giants, right? Right. As it's a private business, but they say we're your team. And that implies an obligation to come when the team's losing, to support them, to come to games where they lose, to buy products, to to watch on television, to listen on radio. And I remember my son John, when the Rams were leaving, I mean, to him that was like Disneyland leaving or <laughs> right. the ocean being moved. <laughs> so if you want that kind of loyalty, then unless a city is just unwilling to support a team, um, it should stay where it's been loyally supported and try to work it out. Right. Hey, br- briefly, were you close to being an owner at all? I, I don't know with the Rams or with a with an NFL team or any team, any was, franchise. Um, a time when um, Ken Baring and the Seahawks asked me, he he had moved them temporarily because the kingdom was falling in, <laughs> and so they had an outcome at least. And he moved them temporarily to Orange County and asked me if I'd be willing to run that team and be a part owner. And I said, no, I didn't think I'd trade my practice for that. But the Angels were for sale at that moment. And uh, I said, would you buy the Angels also? And he said, yeah, I'd be interested. I said, look, if you would allow me to run the baseball team, run the football team, and build a regional sports network in Southern California, that would interest me. And uh, But then they were threatened by the commissioner that they couldn't move, and and instead of fighting like Al Davis did, uh, they went back to Seattle. I'm glad that, that it would have been wrong to take them out of Seattle. Yeah, good for yeah, good for Seattle too that that they have the franchise they have and what it's become. I, I mentioned a comeback story, and Lee, you've been at this. I'm not sure how comfortable you are talking about it, but uh, you know, you you've gone through a lot with all the success you've had in your career, uh, some you know financial. I'm uh, uncomfortable. Yes. Uh, 
from the standpoint that you go through an experience like that, I'm anxious to help others who might do it. I struggled with alcohol uh, 10 or 12 years ago and finally came to the point where um, I realized that my life had become unmanageable. And uh, so I gave my practice to the younger agents. I uh, moved out of the house I was in and uh, I said two things. I'm going to be sober and I'll be a good father. If anything else happens, you know, that's just uh, gravy. So I worked a 12 step program. Um, with a unique fellowship and uh, went into sober living and uh, stayed focused on it. And if anyone's out there struggling, depressed, hopeless, there's help available. And if you have resilience, if you're willing to have a sense of optimism that even if your current situation seems bleak and uh, you feel like you're out of control, there's help available. And, and so earlier this year, I celebrated my 10th year of continuous sobriety, and uh, I've tried to use it to help other people. Well, and you are to be applauded for that and being able to talk about it in a little bit of a twist of, of fate where before all of this with you, you were guiding young athletes uh, on, on a, as you said, beforehand or if they had issues through this and then you had to you had to take hold yourself i i would say the one follow i would have to that lee uh is when you said if you're struggling having problems i think it's oftentimes you had to people don't realize if they're riding on top of the world and things are going well but they have issues with either alcohol or some other addiction or just they're headed down the wrong path what what can you tell them about being alert before or looking for that to check yourself is there is there something you learned in that where you had to make that decision to say, hey, I'm going to stop this and I'm going to be better at this? So in my case, I, it was never work because I have an expectation each day as I walk into the office that notwithstanding how hard we've tried, we won't get every client, we won't win every situation, We something that uh, you haven't planned for is going to go awry. It was... A situation where my father died a long death of cancer, who was really central to my life. Um, my two boys were diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, which is an eye disease that starts with night blindness and leads to total blindness. We lost a house near the beach here in Newport Beach to mold. <clears throat> my marriage started to have problems. And I felt like I was supposed to be able to protect my, my kids from from a condition like that, protect my father from cancer, protect um, uh, my marriage, and and put a good roof over the head of my kids. And I felt like Belliver trapped on the beach, uh, tethered down with little pieces sticking forks to me. And I turned to the wrong thing to sort of blunt the pain. So the truth of the matter is that if you feel that you're becoming out of control because of addiction, uh, a, a disease that affects the brain, um, then there's help available in a 12-step program. And the first thing that's necessary to defeat is 
is to get out of denial because addiction's a disease that tells you you don't have a disease. And so um, I was very functional in the world. Uh, everything was going well. But you have to put that all aside and focus on, again, that if all that had ever happened from 10 years ago to now is that I was a good father, I was kind to other people, and I maintained continuous sobriety, that was my focus. And, and, and then all the other good things come, come after that. Well, it is. It's one of the great comebacks. And I, uh, through all the years, you've been so accessible with your clients, your agent, through Super Bowls and players, uh, and, then, and then to follow your story at this point and, and for you to have the clients you have now and still be working and helping people, I think is a terrific thing. Now, there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. Bring everyone together in a new virtual room. Collaborate live. Building ideas on the same page. And see more of your team on the screen at once. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash Teams. I know that you work with, uh, you have this uh, Steinberg Sports uh, Agent Academy uh, that you've done virtually through this, so you, you've kept up. But I did want to get to, before we let you go, the, uh, the Jerry Maguire movie that uh, we know that's that's all about you or at least taken from you and i know you've consulted on other tv projects and and movies but i i want to know the real story behind this because did they when they put that together where people didn't really know a lot about what sports agents did with, in the athletic world did they come to you first did you know that was about you or or will there one time uh, be a lee steinberg movie that that you'll actually uh, be either consulting on or making sure is accurate so it's Cameron Crowe's brilliant script and Cameron Crowe's creation. And he called me in 1993 and he asked if he could follow me around to pick up atmosphere for a film that would center around a sports agent. And he went with me to the league meetings in 1993 for the NFL that were in Palm Desert. And I was showing Tim McDonald around, who was a free agent at that point. So uh, he, Cameron would see the interactions, he'd be a fly on the wall, he, I told him tons of stories, he went to Pro Scouting Day at USC with me, he went to uh, the draft uh, when Bledsoe was the first pick and he came up to uh, the press conference uh, with Bill Parcells, he came to a series of games with me, he spent time in my office, he came to our Super Bowl party. Um, and then he went in and wrote the script. Well, I was a technical consultant, so my job was to vet the script to make sure the willing suspension of disbelief that holds you in a film uh, didn't get broken. So the dialogue's not stilted. A real sports fan would know that the look had to be right. And then I took an actor like Cuba Gooding Jr. down with me to uh, – the Phoenix Super Bowl, and I made him pretend for a week that he was a client, and he hung out with Desmond Howard and Amandi Tumor. He had to be a wide receiver client to put him into role. I actually had to show the. Uh, I actually had to show the quarterback in the film played by NYU, uh, and they didn't have a football program there. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and I worked with some of the other uh, actors and. And so I really have never walked through an airport or gone anywhere 
And, and that film is not biographical. I started with first pick in the draft. That's not a very good uh, uh, plot. Okay. Right. So, uh, but there's a lot of life up there. And, and every time I walk out in public or at an airport, somebody somewhere runs up and either asks me to say or says to me those four iconic words, show me. <laughs> you got yes, right. And it's, <laughs> should there be a new version of, of, a, of well, a sports yeah, movie? There are a number of um, filmmakers uh, and projects that have come to me. Uh, one of them would be a Mad Men type series uh, on, on that thought that would move through time from me growing up, you know, sitting on the lap of Marilyn Monroe or George Burns taking my first uh, baseball game with my grandpa because uh, he ran Hillcrest Country Club, you know, having an autograph, Elvis Presley guitar, and then it would jump to Berkeley, and then it would jump to the last 40 years. So that's TV. There's a series of people who want to do a doc, and there's a series of people who want to do a, a motion picture um, that would travel uh, through time. And uh, so we'll see. You know how Hollywood is. It's uh, <laughs> a lot of pitches and promises, and uh, the, the chance of something to come to fruition is always different. Yeah, but all is said and done, more is uh, more is said than done. That's how Hollywood goes. But when it does come through, when it does hit, like you're right, Jerry Maguire and, and Jerry Maguire, the movie and the phrase "Show me the money" sticks. And that's one of the reasons why to have you on. I mean, I was fascinated through whether it was Cal Berkeley or growing up in L.A., and then just the stars that you dealt with. Uh, it, and, uh, it, it, and then, uh, and then uh, Oliver Stone had me work on a film called uh, Any Given Sunday. And so I had to um, work. I spent a night with Al Pacino talking about how a coach would feel. I spent some time with Cameron Diaz talking about what it'd be like to be a female owner. I spent an advisor uh, on that one, too. And then I did a baseball film called uh, From Love of the Game with Kevin Costner. Oh, yeah, terrific. And, yeah, Ben Scully. Yeah. Yeah, he did all of his own pitching. And um, so, uh, and then Arliss, of course. I used to give Arliss all my most nefarious ideas. Yeah, Robert Wall. Yeah, that was a great series. Yeah, fun series. But, you know, you'd have Arliss have an affair with uh, a client's wife, which... Um, is a bucket of a suicide. Uh, <laughs> right, right, right. But that's how he would do all that. Uh, exactly. Well, a lot of good fun. I look forward to hopefully uh, the next one. By the way, uh, any given Sunday, I had uh, a voiceover play by play in that before I was ever doing play by play. This is something Oliver Stone listened on the phone, or at least they, they told me he listened, and I had to make up like I was calling a game, and then they used it and added it in the background in the, in the movie. So it, it, kind of a cool moment. And a good moment to talk to you. I always enjoy it. And uh, given some of your young clients. That's because you have that deep, mellifluous voice, right? I'd like to have a voice transplant with you. Um, <laughs> well, we, do, we have a whole new generation. We have Aaron Jones with the Green Bay Packers, uh, who's a pretty good running back and a, and a wonderful person or uh, – uh, and, and this year we also had Jerry Judy in the draft who went to Denver uh, from Alabama. And uh, we have a hot young linebacker, Jam Brown, who makes the Pro Bowl soon. So we've, we've got a good uh, crop. And, um, uh, and through the Agent Academy, 
and the Sports Career Conference, which we're trying to mentor a new generation of sports professionals with ethics and values and that are trained in specific skills. It's a noble cause, and it's amazing from Steve Barkowski through the years with Aikman and, and Young, and now, as you mentioned, Tua and Mahomes, and, and not just quarterbacks. We didn't even get into some of the other athletes through the years you represented because of the, the time here, but I'd love to have you back to talk again, and, uh, and I wish you well. You stay, stay healthy, Lee. Uh, good luck to you and your clients, your family, and we will talk again uh, some other time. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure. Lee Steinberg with us on CMI, the Chris Myers interview here on Podcast One. Thanks for listening to CMI, the Chris Myers interview. Make sure to subscribe, rate, review, and spread the word. Get new episodes every Wednesday on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify.